talking about uh, race uh, discrimination, the civil rights movement back in the 60s, and she was asking me the other night about if we studied civil rights in uh, uh, school. I said, no, we never studied civil rights in school because uh, it wasn't written at that time. We actually lived through the civil rights movement, which I think it caught her off guard just for a moment as she re-realized my age. I'm 56 years old, and I was born in 1959, and so civil rights was at its, uh, that was the epicenter of the civil rights movement from 54 to the late 60s. And so we decided that uh, we would do uh, an interview. She had to interview someone uh, for a school project, and she picked me, which I was so excited about. And so here we go. My daughter, Tristan, who is a freshman in high school, is going to be the interviewer today. Tristan, how are you doing? I am very well, thank you. Are you excited about this podcast? Yes. Now, how many podcasts have you done before? Half. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've done half of one, and so is. <laughs> oh, I was in the um the bird show one, so you, I guess that counts as one. You did show up in the bird show, and that was that was an that was an excellent podcast, by the way, with you and your mother. Anyway, you you can actually find that podcast on SoundCloud. All right, so this is your fir- first full podcast that you're doing, and you're going to interview me. Yes. All right, so hit me with your hit me with your questions. Okay, so uh, why don't we start off with some basic information? You, um, well, I'm pretty sure everybody out there knows your name, but could you just tell them that for us? Yes, this is Rick Thomas. So you were born. I was born uh, Cinco de Mayo in 1959. And your hometown. I'm from a little town called Monroe, North Carolina, M-O-N-R-O-E. It is about 35 miles southeast of Charlotte. It is a rural community, and back in the 50s, 60s, uh, it was an extremely, it was what we would call a one-horse town. They had a couple of traffic lights, and that was about it. So it was a small farming community outside of the bigger city, Charlotte, but we were not connected To Charlotte at all, to go to Charlotte was a significant day trip, kind of like a mini vacation. So we were excluded in our little one-horse town, uh, Monroe, North Carolina. So can you tell me a bit about yourself, like um, your, well, you've already told us your age, but like your, um, your age during that time, your family, education, religion, professions, community involvement? Yeah, so born in '59, uh, I I came in uh, while the civil rights movement was in full swing. I really was not aware of the civil rights movement until probably around 1965. Uh, I do remember, which is unrelated unrelated to the civil rights movement, John F. Kennedy being assassinated. I was four years old at the time. That is my earliest memory, but as far as civil rights are concerned, uh, there was a very clear racial divide between black and white in our community. It was We had a prejudiced community. Uh, there's no question about it, and I vividly remember the day when uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968, and so the race issue, you know, whether you were involved in it, uh, as far as being an activist or for or, 
for or against. It was a part of everybody's life. I was raised, reared to be bigoted. I was reared to be prejudiced. I remember my grandmother. We we lived out in the country uh, several miles from the city. Uh, There were not really suburbs at that time. So either you lived in or near the city or you lived out in the country. And I remember a, a black gentleman coming to my grandmother's door, knocking on the door for some reason, I'm not sure, and uh, she went to the back of the house. She would not even go to the door. Uh, I, I couldn't. I wouldn't say that she necessarily hated black people. I never heard that out of her. Uh, hers seemed to be more of a fear born out of ignorance because she didn't know any better. She was trained, reared with a racial divide between black and white, and so she never talked critically about black people, but she did have a fear of them, which, as I said, was born out of ignorance. Now, my father, on the other hand, was completely different in that he was uh, more aggressive and more outspoken as far as his opinions uh, regarding black people. I remember uh, as a child, my most vivid memory as a 10-year-old boy, about that age, I don't know exactly, we were sitting around the dinner table, and we were talking about marriage. I'm not sure how that subject came up or why we were talking about marriage, uh, but there were five boys, and so all seven of us, my father, my mother, and, and my brothers were sitting around the table. And my dad, it, it came around to me, he asked me, he said, you know, who or you know, who are you going to marry or what do you think about marriage, however that question was. And I, I told him, I said, well, I'm not sure. I said, I may marry a black uh, woman. And next thing I remember is that he jacked me up, and uh, I was in the corner of the kitchen uh, around the sink area, and he was yelling at me, waving his finger in my face, and I'll never forget it. He said, you are no son of mine. And so that pretty much summed up how he felt about black people. I'm not sure if anything had ever happened to him. Uh, as a child, being that he was a drunk, we did not have a lot of conversations about anything, so I'm not sure historically how he arrived to be such a bigoted person. Maybe the ignorance of his own parents, my grandmother, as I referenced. My mother, on the other hand, was not like that at all. We commonly socialized with uh, black people. Uh, She had black friends, and she didn't seem to make a distinction between black and white. She seemed to be more colorblind, and so we had really two options before us. Uh, I don't know how my parents discussed black and white issues. I never heard any discussions. But the N-word was regularly used in our home. My dad used it regularly, and we used it too as children as a way of cutting, uh, hurting another sibling by calling them that name. But we did have two options before us, my mother and father. One hated black people, and one did not. And I chose the path that my mother went down. I've never struggled with black people, and typically the people that I would make friends with would be black people. But the reason for that is that we were poor people. And so it wasn't a racial issue as much as we were poor. We were what we call poor white trash. And being poor white trash, the white people would not hang around with us. And so the middle class white boys uh, discriminated. They had their own friends, and we were not 
a part of their friend network, and so the only people that we could socialize with were black people. And so it just kind of defaulted that way. I'm not sure if we were middle class, if we had any money, I might have been prejudiced. And so that's how we were reared uh, uh, racially as a child. And as far as church is concerned, we went to what you would call a white church. Again, that's that's not a title that I use or prefer because churches should be whoever God brings to the church and colors should not matter. But back in that day, there were absolutely no uh, integrated churches. You either went to what they called a black church or a white white church if you went to church at all. I do remember as a 13-year-old bussing tables in a restaurant where I saw a, a black man and a white woman come in. They were obviously dating, and they were eating together, spending time together, and I thought it was extremely odd because I never saw it before. And I was uncomfortable with it because I did not know what to do with it. It it was a totally foreign idea. I'd never seen it before in my life. And of course, afterwards, you know, years later, it's kind of commonplace and it's a a non-issue or a non-factor to me. But I do remember because in our town, that's just, that was a radical move, a courageous move, as a matter of fact. So does that help? Kind of a long answer. (laughs) That's a very, very good answer. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Do you recall any major events during this time? The most major, as I mentioned earlier, was the uh, killing, the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King. That was 68 in April, I believe, and so I was about almost uh, 10 years old. I did not understand it. Though, you know, back then the world was a lot smaller, there was no social media, and so things came by letter. Uh, If they came at all, they came a day later in the newspaper, and we only had three TV channels. And so segregation, integration movement, the civil rights movement was for the most part an out there kind of thing. It wasn't in our world. We just lived day to day. And so you, you lived according to who you were, life circumstance, context. And so the greater racial divide didn't affect us. It was hard to be involved in those things unless you lived in towns like Memphis or Birmingham. But small towns, we just did life the way we always have done life. And so if you needed to be friends with whoever you needed to be friends with, in in many cases, it didn't matter. But then there were, of course, bigots everywhere. But the biggest and most significant event was the death of uh, Martin Luther King, and it was stunning. It was very sad. I, I didn't understand. I didn't understand why, you know, they would want to kill the man. But I would say also I was influenced by the little bit of media that we had in our area because he was propagated as an enemy of sorts or a troublemaker, disruptive. And so I didn't fully understand what he was trying to do. I didn't know what it was about. I mean, I knew what he was doing, but I didn't understand it in the detail that I should have or could have understood it. Uh, I understood Dr. King from a, a white worldview, not a, a black worldview or, a, or an integrated worldview. And so, but it was sad because it was the taking of a human life. And whenever you do that uh, under those circumstances, it's not right at all. And so 
it was dramatic. And then right during that time, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated as well. And so those two events were stunning to me and kind of moved me from our one-horse town worldview to realizing that there were bigger events. Of course, I was also coming into my, heading toward my teenage years, so I was becoming more aware of my greater surroundings. Okay, so I think you kind of answered this next question, but maybe you could go into a bit more detail of how did you, your family, and maybe also your friends react to these events, this specific one? It's not uh, something that we discussed. We were more interested in Little League, and it's kind of tied to the fact that we lived in a, a big world. And so our world consisted of the current events within our hometown, and it was almost like we couldn't have any effect on those greater things uh, that were happening out there somewhere. And so it wasn't, and it's not the way we discuss things today. Today, there is a true news cycle, a 24, 48-hour news cycle where things just blow up on Twitter or Facebook or other social media outlets. We just didn't have that platform. And living in the country, as opposed to the inner city, we were separated from those things, so they just were not talking points. In a greater scheme of things, it was business business as usual. Okay. Um, what was, well, I guess you've kind of answered this a bit, but what was life like during the civil rights movement for you and or others? It was a bunch of just poor to middle class people trying to survive it was it was scary uh, when the riots were going on where they're burning parts of a city or you know reacting and the or national guard comes out and they're hosing people and so forth those images were scary scary to watch on television but it was easy to separate ourselves from that because we we were we just weren't a part of it and so in a great way life went on as normal. There was some impact, though, as far as relationships on our level, because there were people who were involved or apprised of racial developments, and they would bring those things, you know, into the school or whatever. And so every now and then there would be some racial tension. Uh, I had to be cognizant of you know, my black friends, that they were being impacted by something that wasn't necessarily impacting me per se, but it, it could put strains on our relationships. But for the most part, uh, we were friends with whom we wanted to be friends with, black or white. It didn't, it didn't matter. Do you recall any segregation in public facilities? Not, well, uh, yeah, we were all segregated. It's like white church, black church. And so it was kind of understood. There was not signage, per se, that said colored or white, which, you know, they had the fountains. Uh, Some towns would have fountains, like out in front of a courthouse, and one fountain would be etched in stone. It would say white, and another fountain would be etched that would say colored. And if you don't know those things are odd, then they're not odd. It's just the way life was. And so the black people... Uh, when we would go pick them up or when the bus would pick them up, we would go into essentially a black subdivision, and that's where we picked up all the black people. That's where they lived. The white people lived in other places. And so everything was divided, white and black. 
but we didn't know that was a problem. And so then when the civil rights movement kicked in gear, uh, they began to tell us it was a problem. We just lived the way that we lived. And that, that's, how you, that's how you're raised. So it's like, you know, you, you, Tristan, you live in a subdivision here that has different races, like this Indian family that lives down the street. And they're in our home all the time, right? Yes. And, and it's like they almost live here. And uh, that would never happen. I mean, we would not. <laughs> we had a black couple over, as, as we say jokingly, there was a big black man sleeping in your bed. Yes. A couple of weeks ago, as my friend Daryl and his wife Melissa came and stayed with us, and that was very normal, and that's how you were raised. So in one way, you don't know any different. Not really. Yeah, I mean, color is not the issue that separates you with people. It's more sin is what separates. And so we have crack addict that lives next door, and our relationships are divided because of that issue. It's irrelevant about her color. But then we have people of darker skin that live down the street, and they're in our house all the time. And so color is not the thing that separates us, but... It's our morality that has more of a, of a divide. And so when we were kids, we just lived with who we lived with in the community in which we lived. It happened to be a white community, so we hung out with white people all the time. But when I got into school, elementary school, middle school, high school, I naturally gravitated to my own kind, which were the poor people. And black people happened to be, from a majority perspective, they happened to be poor most black people were poor, and so I naturally gravitated to them. And so the thing that separated me was not color, but economics. And so I was not friendly, or I, I just didn't fit in with the middle class, what I would call the rich kids, but I fit in with the poor kids. And it didn't matter as far as skin color. But as far as our community is concerned, yeah, it was absolutely separated, you know, black and white. It's just we gravitated to our own kind. And for the most part, own kind was determined by black and white. For me, it wasn't necessarily determined by black and white, but determined by economics. How did you experience segregation at like schools or um, church or other public areas? Well, church was, as I mentioned, it was black and white. And so it does create an ignorance because if you don't associate with people that are different from you, then you really don't get to know them. And it's it's easy to start making stuff up or assuming that, you know, this person is this way, not necessarily based on facts or maybe based on an experience with another person that's black. But that doesn't mean that this person is just like that. And so the biggest, the biggest effect was our, our community was segregated, and it led to a lot of ignorance. Did you ever witness public authorities um, harming blacks? I don't recall that happening. I mean, I would be willing to say that my black friends, uh, they more than likely saw those things. Uh, see, the thing is, is because of the way that we were reared, we were actually hated by the white by the white authorities. So and so we were we were discriminated. My family, my brothers and I were discriminated, abused by authority leaders too. So again, it it wasn't necessarily a black white thing, though I'm sure that many of my black friends could testify uh, that they were discriminated solely on the fact that they were black. How did segregation affect your home life? 
Uh, the only incident was one I mentioned about my dad who disowned me as a t- as a ten year old boy. That was pretty much it. I think the thing that softened that uh, there were two things that softened that. One is that my mother uh, was not prejudiced that way, and that just made more sense to me. But the other thing was uh, sports, because our home was so dysfunctional. We didn't sit around and talk and enjoy each other, and there was so much chaos in our home that I used television as an outlet to escape from the dysfunction of my home. And by that time, black athletes were commonplace uh, in the three major sports that I watched, which was um, basketball, uh, football, and baseball. And so I remember in 1968 watching Bob Gibson play for the St. Louis Cardinals and many other black athletes athletes. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was actually Lou Alcindor back in that day in 1968, won the NCAA championship playing against the North Carolina Tar Heels, which is my team, but we lost. And Sidney Wicks and other other great black players that played for UCLA and other, and other black athletes. And so sports was an avenue for me to escape the miserableness of my home life. And that was more important to me than being prejudiced over a black athlete. So my mother's approach to the black-white issue and also enjoying sports were two things that helped remove any kind of you know bigotry that I could have. Were there any whites fighting for blacks? Not that I was aware of. I'm sure that there were folks that were pro-black or pro-segregation. In fact, I know they were pro-segregation, but again, we were isolated in our community. And so having a voice, having a platform against segregation, we were in no position. We wouldn't even know how to accomplish that. That would be a foreign idea. It's hard to, you really have to separate yourself from today's culture and the culture of what we're talking about now is 50 years ago. Today, you can create a voice. It's, it's not that complicated with social media. But we had no voice whatsoever back then. You really had to do demonstrable uh, things like you know marches on Washington, D.C., which Martin Luther King did. And so when you have hundreds of thousands of people, that's the only way that you can re- really create any kind of of noise, but where we were, we had no power or leverage in which we could fight for or against anything because, again, it was just a a different day. They would have to be special circumstances, which Martin Luther King created those circumstances to where he could create a voice that spoke out. And of course, once it hit the airwaves and the news outlets, as few as they were in that day, it was it was a lot of noise. But we didn't. We did not fight or have a voice that could do anything like that. You did touch on this next question uh, earlier, but maybe you could go in to explain a bit more uh, about your black friends. Black people would be tentative initially with any white guy approaching them uh, in a befriending kind of way. But those, it was easy to break the barriers. Uh, in fact, there were no barriers if you didn't create them. And since black was not a barrier for me, we just started talking normally, uh, like you would talk to any human being. And so once they got over the tentativeness or the unusualness of, of a white person actually befriending a black person, because they would naturally gravitate to their own, 
if black is not an issue, then there's really nothing to separate you. And we just talk like two normal human beings. And, and so it was easy to make friends with um, black people. Do you recall the incident you recognized segregation between blacks and whites? The event with my father, and I had a couple of brothers who were prejudiced. They took my father's perspective. And so the black-white problem was always in our home uh, through the language that we used. Uh, If you wanted to hurt somebody verbally, you would drop the N-word on them. Did you ever travel outside of your hometown? And if you did, where? And how did this affect your view on segregation? Not really. I mean, we would go to the beach maybe once a year. Uh, But in the 60s, you know, you didn't see black people on the beach. It was mostly, you know, white people at the beach. So it was kind of odd. And well, actually, it wasn't odd. It was normal. Uh, It would be odd to see a black person. And if you did, you just wouldn't go and hang out with them because that's not what you did. And then we would go to Charlotte, which was, you know, 40 minutes away, maybe, to what a concert of some sort. If, if there were black people that were a part of those shows, uh, spectators, you really didn't have a problem with them because we're all enjoying the same thing. And so traveling outside of our little community did not exacerbate you know, black-white tensions. It was still pretty much the same. Do you remember any family members or friends that have suffered from segregation? No. Well, I could take that from the opposite perspective. Any of our family members that are prejudiced have suffered from segregation, integration, because they've, they missed out. They missed a lot of opportunities to make friends, to build relationships. They've also suffered because of hate. Anybody that hates is suffering. And so from that perspective, it has been detrimental. It was detrimental to my father because he was just a bigoted human being. He did not. So he has no idea you know, what it's like to reconcile with another human being or to love another human being that's different you know, from him. And so there's, there's a, a suffering in that way, but not in the way, I'm not aware in the way that in which you're asking that question. Do you recall when you first heard of the death of Martin Luther King? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, it was, and I don't remember, you know, the timeline as far as how many hours later or if it came across the screen or not. I do remember the video of the hotel and you know, showing that it made no sense. It was sad. It did heighten. That was almost a a, clim- a climactic moment, I suppose. It made it more real than anything else. I mean, there were riots that we saw television, but the actual shooting of the point person, the lead person in this whole uh, civil rights movement, that you know transcended the other events that happened during the '60s. How did the struggles for blacks to become professional sports players affect your thinking and or the thinking of others? Uh, Sympathetically, they were not allowed. It's one of the reasons that I like the North Carolina Tar Heels is that Dean Smith recruited Charlie Scott, a black man, the first black man to play basketball uh, for North Carolina. Being an underdog, I always naturally pull for the underdog. And so it did not seem right to not let them play. But by the time that I came into sports, which would be around 65, 1966, 
black people, you know, Jackie Robinson had already broken the color barrier. And so black people being a part of sports was commonplace, even though they were being discriminated against. It was becoming more socially accepted, at least on television. We were not involved with it, but we could watch it, and we didn't mind. That's kind of the irony, though, is that some of the most bigoted people would pull for their sports team, and if a black person was on that sports team, you didn't sense the racism as much as long as they were helping their team win. What are your thoughts on the civil rights movement? What does it mean to you? I have mixed feelings about it because I come at it from a a sin Adamic perspective, meaning that we can take anything that's good and push it farther than we should. And so there's good and bad with it. I think there have been some people that have been opportunistic, that they have taken advantage of this for sinful, wrong reasons. But as far as the idea of it's concerned, I think it was a good idea. Again, there should not be a racial divide like that. And it's one of the beauties of Christianity is that there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's not black and white. We are one. And a black man and or woman and a white man, white woman, are made in the image of God. And there should not be that disparity. There should not be those lines drawn. So for the most part, I think it's a great idea. And this is our last question. Do you think the civil rights movement has changed you? I guess I would have to say it has, but in that it has cemented, it has it has forced me to reflect upon things that maybe I would not have spent time thinking about. And so the black-white thing hasn't been so much what has changed, but the means in which we think about things have changed dramatically. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.